Turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you're looking at me with crazy eyes, yes, I know that we are in the book of Revelation. We've been, uh, if you're visiting with us, we've been walking through the book of Revelation uh, section by section over the last month, number of months, and we still have a little ways to go, about seven or eight messages left in Revelation. But this morning, we're taking a one-week hiatus to address the topic of evangelism head-on. We're talking about, as you just heard from Pastor John, uh, this bridge course. We're looking to be faithful witnesses in our community. And, and as we anticipate starting this course a month from now, we just want to talk about this topic directly from the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Well, please join me in prayer. Father, this morning, I, my heart just overflows with gratefulness, for you are a good God. We all show up this morning with various circumstances in our lives that, that try us in very way, various ways, but Father, you are faithful. You sustain us through them. Even this last week, Father, as we prayed for one of our brothers, Lord, to be delivered from a medical trial, Father, you answered our prayers, and we thank you for that. And so this morning, we gather to worship you. We gather to receive from you. We gather to encourage one another in our faith and to be encouraged in our faith. And all of these things, Father, we do with grateful hearts. We ask you now, Father, to speak to us from your word, that you would grant us hearts to receive your word and to go out and to be doers of your word. But we need help. We need to be empowered by your spirit toward that end. So I pray that you would do that, Father. Fill us now. Strengthen us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, please follow along as I read from the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 9. This, this is God's holy and authoritative word. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in, new, is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them 
and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with Him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For He says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Father, I pray that you would bless the preaching of your holy word. Well, evangelism in this world is an intimidating thing. It always has been, but in our world, in our context, in this day and age, our faith is tested in all places, it seems. It is tested in the workplace. It seems that the media and major brands are increasingly hostile to Christianity. Christians get publicly canceled simply for being faithful, orthodox believers, holding to what the Bible teaches and the church has believed for thousands of years. Even animated movies are increasingly introducing themes that fly in the face of what God calls good and holy. And then we see increasing rates of number of people declaring that they don't have a religion at all. What they, they click the box that says, none, when asked, what religion, what faith do you have? And add to that, we see high-profile Christians deconstructing their faith. Listen to this letter written by a 17-year-old student writing to his friend. You ask me my religious views, you know, I think, that I believe in no religion. There is absolutely no proof for any of them. And from a philosophical standpoint, Christianity is not even the best. All religions, that is, all mythologies, to give them their proper name, are merely man's own invention. Christ, as much as Loki. Superstition, of course, in every age has held the common people, but in every age, the educated and thinking ones have stood outside it, though usually outwardly conceded to it for convenience. Of course, mind you, I am not laying down as a certainty that there is nothing outside the material world, considering the discoveries that are always being made. This would be foolish. Whenever any new light can be got into such matters, I will be glad to welcome it. In the meantime, I am not going to go back to the bondage of believing in any old and already decaying superstition. Well, that letter is probably a fair representation of what many people that you know believe. It's probably a fair representation of conversations that you've had with unbelieving friends, family members, neighbors, coworkers, etc. This is articulated well, but it embodies what much of the unbelieving world believes. I've certainly heard different variations of this from my own unbelieving family members or friends, people I care about. And so sharing the gospel in this kind of context, when people don't believe in truth, when people are ambivalent to spiritual realities, it's not easy. And yet, it is a central part of what we're called to do as followers of Jesus Christ. 
So in our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul calls us ambassadors for Christ. We are called to live and bear witness to the beauty of the gospel in a, in a land that is ambivalent to these truths, in a land that is hostile to it. And so this morning, I want to point you to this passage. It's a little bit of a longer passage than we normally look at together. But I want to look at this passage together and consider three key aspects of what this means. First, we're going to look at the kingdom that we represent Secondly, we will look at the message that we are called to proclaim. And finally, we will look at the urgency of the task. So first, the kingdom we represent. First of all, what does it mean to be an ambassador? To be an ambassador is to be a messenger. It is to be a representative. His message, his authority is given to him by someone else. Ambassadors exist to deliver a message. Now, we, we prayed earlier for uh, someone who many of you, most of you remember, uh, Bart Lipscomb and his wife, Jessica. What you might not know, now he served, if you're new here, he served as a pastor here uh, for the first several church, years of our church here. But what you may not know is that when Bart and Jessica first arrived in Austin, they came as ambassadors. You see, they had discovered the best ice cream in the world, Grater's Black Raspberry Chip Ice Cream. And they came here, amen, as ambassadors to, to, to declare, to proclaim a message. Here it is. We have found it. And it's amazing. And it is amazing. It's amazing. They came here to represent this land. Now, ultimately, they weren't as successful as one might have hoped because it's still not available at HEB. But I'm, I'm digressing and I'm sorry. Here's the point. Ambassadors exist to represent someone else. They exist to proclaim a message. And as ambassadors of Christ, we represent the foreign power of the kingdom of God. We do not live for ourselves. We do not share a message of our own. We do not act on our own behalf or live pursuing our own interests. And by the way, ambassadors, by definition, they do not live at home. Ambassadors live in a foreign land, spending their life with those whose ways are strange to them, whose cultural customs are different from theirs. And in this foreign country, he represents his own king, his own kingdom, and he brings the message of that king. To use another metaphor that, that Peter uses in, his, in one of his letters, we are exiles, we are strangers and sojourners in a foreign land. We are, th this world is not our home. This is not all that there is, and we don't want to make ourselves just cozy here thinking that this is all that there is. And that really has to hit for us, for us to understand our calling, our vocation as ambassadors of Christ. We need to remember this is not our home. Here's one of the implications for that. It means... Try to picture this in your mind. It means that we have more in common with a believer of Christ in Iran, with an Iranian Christian, than we do with an American non-Christian. You picture that? Do you believe that? You have more in common if you, believe to the, if you belong to the kingdom of Christ with a fellow believer who lives in a completely different culture, in a completely different secular society, who belongs to a different country, has different citizenship, whose beliefs may be many, in, in many ways may be wildly different from yours. But you have more in common with him or her 
than you do with your next-door neighbor who is an American citizen but is not a citizen of heaven. Now, if that is not true of us, if we, if we feel that we have more in common, if we don't feel that we have more in common with a Christian who lives in a different culture than we do with an American citizen who is not a Christian, if that's not true of us, then we've probably been more enculturated in American secular society than we realize, if that's primarily where we find our identity. But the reality is that if we belong to Christ, if we belong to His kingdom first and foremost, that trumps every other concern out there. If you are a follower of Christ, you represent Him. That means that you and I are to speak on His behalf. An ambassador's job is to deliver the message entrusted to him or her. An ambassador's job is to represent the kingdom of which he is a part, not to speak his own opinions, but to faithfully deliver the message that he has been entrusted with. The same is true for you and I. We are to deliver the message that Jesus Christ has given us. It is not something that we want to invent. It is not something that we add to, subtract from, or distort from. Our job is to deliver the message of the gospel faithfully into the context in which we are called. You have been called, you've been placed wherever you are in this context. You were created and designed and God ordained for you to be created at a particular point in the world, in a particular place, and surrounded by particular people. And that means that that reshapes our priorities for why we're here. We're not here, verse 15, to live for ourselves. Let me give you one example of, of how that shifts our priorities. One of, my, one of my family members moved to a socialistic country a number of years ago. And since he's been there, he has completely bought into that culture and, and into that economic system and that political philosophy. And he has grown in animosity towards capitalism and to this country in particular. Now, I'm a born and bred U.S. citizen. I'm a Texan at that. But it's in these moments that I must remember that my identity is not found in my country. It's not found in my state. It's in these, in these moments that while as, a, as an American citizen, I'm, I'm grateful for our country. As a Christian, I already have an uphill job preaching the gospel, talking about a crucified and risen Savior. And therefore, I don't want to put additional barriers before that task about things that don't ultimately matter. You see, this family member has no shortage of political sparring partners, no shortage, no lack of people who share his enthusiasm for a particular economic system or animosity towards our country, no shortage of people who will, who will champion that on the contrary. But where will he hear of the glory of God in Christ? Where will he see the transforming power of the gospel if not from me? Where will your neighbors and your family members encounter the message of the gospel? The, the Mormons are going door to door. The world is streaming philosophies from billboards and magazines and media, and they've got a lot of money behind it. Our attention is being diverted all over the place. And so your neighbors and your family members need to hear the gospel and need to see it lived out in your life as you befriend them and as you have them in your home. And it's in this that we fulfill our calling to represent another 
kingdom. So as ambassadors of Christ, first and foremost, we represent another kingdom. We also proclaim the message of our king. That's point two. We proclaim a particular message. This is our central task. So what is that message? We must know what is the message that we are called to proclaim. What is it I'm called to live out? What is it that I'm called to bear witness to? What is that specifically? Well, it is a message of salvation. It is a message of the cross. It is a message of reconciliation. Five times in these verses, Paul uses the language of reconciliation. It may help to, to tease this out a bit in order to better understand the impact of this offer in terms of the problem we face, the solution that God offers, and the result of our response. Maybe this will help you in your conversations with others as you, as you encounter, as you talk to others. It'll give you a little bit of a framework. Some uh, throughout church history have used the framework of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Just about every story told in, in books or in films uses, embodies these same aspects in their own way. You think about it, even in romance movies, you have boy meets girl, boy falls in love with girl, they experience a problem, boy loses girl, and then they find a solution so that they can then be restored and live happily ever after. It's the same old story, but with a different purpose and different goal in mind. In God's story, God created everything. God spoke creation into being. He created you and I. But the problem is that, that we live in our self-focused, sinful rebellion and have been separated from God as a result. So there's a need for reconciliation because of the broken down relationship that exists. That's the, before the gospel is good news, it's bad news. It tells us of sin. Our sin is what separates us from God, and we must grasp that in order to understand and appreciate the solution. You see, Thomas Watson said, till sin be bitter, grace will not be sweet. We can go around preaching grace, but if people don't understand why we need grace, grace is not going to be amazing. So that's part one. That's our problem. The solution in verse 19, look at verse 19. God in Christ came into this world for the express purpose of reconciling us to himself. Who's doing the work there? He's doing the work. And look at verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a glorious verse. This verse, brothers and sisters, please memorize 2 Corinthians 5.21. It is one of the most glorious, brief encapsulations of the gospel. Justification through propitiation. This is the great exchange. This is the message that we proclaim. All of humanity stands guilty before God, fully deserving His judgment. And judgment is real. And yet because of God's love for us, He sent His Son spotless and perfect, to take on himself all of the sin of anyone who will believe in him as if he was guilty of them all. And he did this so that by faith in him, without any act of righteousness on our part, strictly by faith in him as our Lord and Savior, we might be declared righteous as if we had perfectly obeyed, as if we had never sinned one time. 
That is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it is glorious. This is the message that we proclaim. And as a result, we should be the most happy and humble people in all the world. We are humble because our sins are what nailed him to the cross. And we are happy because we stand forgiven at the cross, never to be condemned again. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so the result, the result of our response is forgiveness. It's new life in Christ. It's imputed righteousness. We can approach God this morning in full confidence, and we can stand here today lifting our hands in praise because we have been forgiven. Not because we did good enough this week, not because we put enough money in the offering basket, not because we shared the gospel with somebody, not because we didn't sin enough, but because we are found in Christ. By faith in Him, we are adopted into His family as children. We are filled with His Spirit. Verse 17, we're a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Listen, when you try to make sense of your life apart from Christ, when you try to make sense of your story apart from God's story, it's like taking your pickup truck out on the lake and trying to drive it across the water. It's not going to work, and it's just going to be a frustrating experience, doomed for failure. When your neighbors and your friends try to find their hope and their story and make sense of it apart from God's story, it's not going to happen. And so if the problems that we see in life are anything short of our need for reconciliation with God, we will not experience God's amazing grace in His solution. We spend all our time with our unbelieving friends trying to help them make sense of their story or live a more productive and happy life, but we're not doing it by connecting them to God's story. What are we doing? A life trying to, trying to make sense of life apart from God's story is, is lived like the author of Ecclesiastes said, chasing after the wind. It's all vanity. It's futile. It's hopeless. And so when others ask you, and I hope that others are asking you, for the reason for the hope you have, don't point don't point to your health and prosperity. Don't point to, you know, to that everything's working out and, and you've got it all figured out. All those things can disappear in a moment. Point them to Jesus. J.C. Ryle, in an old book, aptly titled Old Paths, said, Never, never be ashamed to let men know that you derive all your comfort from the atoning blood of Jesus Christ and from His substitution for you on the cross. He is our only hope. He is the reason for my joy. He is the reason for my happiness. And don't despise little moments to do that. One of, one of my sons works at Chick-fil-A. And just a week or two ago, he was working the drive-thru and someone came up and said, how are you doing? And my son said, better than I deserve. This guy said, better than you, what, what do you deserve? And, the guy, and my son said, well, I, I deserve God's judgment. I deserve hell. And the guy said, why? And he said, because I have rebelled against the living God, but Jesus died and paid for my sins. And the guy looked at him and said, I, I'd like a number two with a Coke. <laughs> now, maybe you think that sounds a little foolish to say to a stranger. 
Or maybe you just don't think that you have the words to articulate to your professional and intelligent friends, and that's okay. God can use our stuttering and our stammering as we try to share something as simple as John 3.16, and I bet 90% of you in the room have memorized John 3.16. He can use us as we share our testimonies, however imperfectly, as we hand someone a gospel tract or one of those bridge invitation cards. And we're, we're, we're out of those today, by the way. We'll have more next week. He can use that. He can use a Facebook post where you're pointing people to Jesus. He can use a personal letter that you write to a dear friend sharing your testimony and telling them how to find reconciliation and peace with God. He can use any of those things. And brothers and sisters, he does use those things. So I want to encourage you, never lose your sense of wonder at the grace that you have received. Never take your salvation for granted. Never take the grace that you experience today Today, God's enduring patience. Do you, are you aware that God continues to be patient with you? He continues to overlook your sin. He continues to not strike you down in any moment where in a fit of anger you, you shake your fist at the driver next to you or you'll lose it with your spouse or with your kids. God continues to extend grace, and we never want to lose our sense of wonder. We want to continue to see grace as increasingly more and more amazing. And we want to share that wonder. We want to proclaim that wonder. We are here in this world as ambassadors for Christ, and that means we have a job to do, and that is to proclaim the message of our King, to declare the captives free, to point the hurting and the wounded to their only source of help and hope. Our message is Jesus. And finally, I want to point you to the urgency of our task. Make no mistake, there is an urgency to the calling that Christ commissions us to. None of us are promised tomorrow. None of your lost friends and family members are promised next week. Now, that does not mean that we run around like high-pressured salespeople trying to constantly close the deal, you know, just running around to every person in the street and being a maniac. There's a wonderful little book on evangelism called Tactics by Greg Kukul. I, I commend it to you. Very, very good. And in that book, he says that he sets it as a goal. Now, he's, this guy's a professional evangelist. He says that his goal in any conversation, he, he's grateful if he gets to lead somebody to Christ, but his goal is simply to what he calls put a pebble in their shoe. You've gotten a pebble in your shoe and you're like, what, what is that? It's, it's annoying me. It's bothering me. His goal, he says, is to put a pebble in people's shoes, to give them something to think about, to give them something that, that bothers them in regard to the gospel of Christ, something that will stick with them and provoke their thought. Paul said that in the work of evangelism, there are those who plant seeds, there are those who water, but that it's God that gives the growth. Now, oftentimes, we just set our mind on that, on the growth. Well, I need to produce the growth. What, what we need to set our mind on is that most of what we do is planting seeds and, and watering seeds. So I want to encourage you to think of your evangelistic task in a similar manner. Don't think of it as a failed conversation if someone doesn't pray the sinner's prayer. Praise God if they do. But our aim is simply to be faithful. It's to be faithful. We want to ask the Lord by His grace, to help us simply move the ball down the field a little bit. 
You can't score a touchdown on every play, but maybe you can move the chains a little bit. We need to trust that a sovereign God is at work, and it is not ultimately up to you and I to save people, but we can give them something to think about. We can live this out. We can then ask God to work. But we also must understand there is urgency to this task. There is an urgency to what we've been called to do, and Paul felt that urgency. I want to see, I want you to see, I want you to point you to see here three reasons in this passage for urgency, and may God cause these to rest with some weight on our hearts so that we will also feel the same Pauline urgency, the same Christ-like urgency as we think about sharing the gospel with others in our community. First, we see the reality of judgment. There is coming a day of judgment. Look at verse 19. Paul is keenly aware of this. He talks about it in many places, including here. Here in verse 9, he says, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Again, J.C. Ryle said, settle it down in your mind that the vast majority of people around you are in awful danger of being lost forever. Work every engine for bringing the gospel to bear upon them. As we've been going through the book of Revelation, we have seen chapter after chapter of God's judgment. We do not want to shy away from what God tells us in His Word. There is coming a day of judgment. It is real. It has terrible consequences. All will not be forgiven. Only those who have put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ will stand on that day. And that reality should sober us. It should startle us. I don't feel this enough. Oh, that I pray that the Lord would impress this upon my heart and help me to live my life in this world constantly aware that this life is temporary. It is fleeting. It is passing. Life is a vapor. And eternity is forever. It's so easy to be focused on the cares of this world and to be thinking about living a cozy and comfortable life now, attending to all the cares of this world and to forget what we are called to do with our lives now And that that will echo into eternity. So that's our first motive here in this text. The reality of judgment. The fear of the Lord. Here's the second. The compulsion of love. Look down at verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Now that word control is a, it's a very strong word. That word means to seize or to compel or to constrain or urge or even force someone into action. This is the same word that Jesus used in, in the Gospel of Luke when He said, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Jesus was compelled to go to the cross. Why was He compelled? Out of love. Again, verse 14, the love of Christ controls us because, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died, and He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We are called not to live for ourselves, brothers and sisters. Here's what Paul means. I think there are different ways to read this. I think that what he is saying is that when we realize how much Christ loved us, that he loved us enough to die for us, that should compel us. 
That should motivate us. That should fuel us in our daily lives. We should be driven by the fact that He died. We should live, as someone said, as if Christ died yesterday, as if He's coming back tomorrow. We should live lives compelled by the cross. When we, in return, love Him, that love should compel us. And then perhaps also the love of Christ for others and our love for others should also compel us. If we love people, we should live and we should feel the urgency of the task of sharing the gospel with them. We should see there's a problem. They are not experiencing God's solution and the consequences are terrible if they don't respond. So the reality of judgment, the compulsion of love, and finally, the shortness of time. Look at these last verses in the first two verses of chapter 6 that I read, verses 1 and 2. Working together with Him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For He says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Paul, Paul feels this. He feels this urgency. He feels this. He is the urgency of responding to this message and sharing this message because the time is short. He says, now's the day. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. None of us are guaranteed another opportunity. Not, that, that, that should rest with some weight on us like it did for Paul. On our hearts and our lives, it should cause us to appeal to others. You notice the strong verbs that Paul uses throughout this letter. He says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade. We persuade others. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled. We appeal to you. These are strong words that reflect the way in which Paul shared the gospel message with passion, aware of the urgency of the task. That should be, that should inform the way that we look at our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and our family members. As Paul says, not according to the flesh. So let me, let me conclude in this way. I want, I want to address two, two groups of people just very briefly. First off, I, I, want, to, I want to address, I, I want to speak to you as a moment as an ambassador of Christ to those who are in need of reconciliation. Let me ask you are, you, are you reconciled to God? Have you seen your sin and, and your need for salvation? Do you know that in yourself that relationship with God is broken and that needs to be restored? Have you accepted the terms of the king who offers you peace? Through the sin-bearing, substitutionary death of His Son, Jesus Christ, have you this morning placed all of your trust not in your works, not in your morality, not in your law-keeping, not in your church attendance or your church membership or your baptism or anything else you've done? Have you placed your trust only in the finished work of Jesus Christ, what He has done for you? Have you received the gospel? If you have not, chapter 6, verse 2, today is the day of salvation. Do not put this off. Don't delay. Teenagers, don't delay. Young people, do not delay. 
Don't think, well, I'll, I will worry about that someday. What, right now I'm focused on school. Right now I'm going to do this or that. I'm, I'm, I'm looking to get married, whatever it is. If you are an unbeliever here this morning, you're here with a believing spouse or family member, don't delay. Don't put this off. If you're older, do not delay responding to the message of Jesus Christ. Today is the day of salvation. Secondly, I want to speak to you as an ambassador to fellow ambassadors. If you are a Christian here this morning, then you also are an ambassador of Christ. You are that. It's not, it's not like some additional calling that some holy rollers aspire to. It's true of all of us. We belong to Him. We represent Him. You have a priority in your relationships with others and in your communication with others, and that is the priority to proclaim the message that you've been given. Dear saint that's now with the Lord, John Stott said, until we have received reconciliation, we cannot proclaim it. Once we have received it, we must proclaim it. We must. It is part of our discipleship. It is part of our obedience. It is part of our job. And this job leads to irrepressible joy. There are few things that bring joy like seeing someone go from death to life. It's great. I love you know, seeing people that have all kinds of success stories of, of losing 50 pounds or getting out of debt or getting married or reconciling a relationship. All these things are wonderful. None of them compare to going from death to life. None of them will matter as much in eternity. So as you think through your various relationships, right where God has placed you, as you seek to give your friends and family members something to think about as you seek to put a, a, a pebble in their shoe, I want to encourage you, grab a stack of those gospel tracts or those bridge invites. Again, they're not here today, but we'll have them next week. Take some of those with you and ask the Lord to bless your efforts as you befriend people, as you take an interest in them, as you learn their stories. And, and I want to encourage you, listen to their stories. Listen for where their story short circuits, where they say, yeah, I, I've, got, I've got this friend, Mike Montefusco. He, he owns a gym on the East Coast. And I love this, this brilliant moment one time. He was talking about what he does for a living. He owns a gym. And he says, Aaron, all I do every day is I sit there and I talk to people. And, I, and I'm looking to you know, enroll them in the gym. And I hear them tell me all these reasons why they need Jesus and why they think that fitness is their solution. I thought that was a, a, such a brilliant insight. Now, they, they weren't saying, I need Jesus. and therefore, No, they were saying, my life's a mess, and I, I, I need something to hold on to. I need something stable. And they're looking to fitness, thinking, that's my hope. Now, I'm a fan of you know, taking care of your body, et cetera. But that does not provide the kind of lasting hope that the gospel of Jesus Christ does. And so we want to listen well to people. Here, where are they trying to find hope outside of Christ? Because they won't find it apart from Him. And it may cost us some, some relational challenges. It may cost us as we share this message with others. We, this is an intimidating task. I know that. There are a few things that make us squirm, like when the preacher calls us to go share the gospel. We know that. But the Lord meets us in our weakness. 
It's in our weakness that we experience the strength of the Lord. It's the person who says, Lord, I need you. The God says, that's the one to whom I will look. We all need to get outside of our comfort zones. We all need to be equipped. But we have a message to proclaim. You remember that, that, the letter from the 17-year-old student that I read earlier? guy that said that Christianity is mythology, a superstition, that he wasn't going to believe any old decaying you know, story like that. Do you know who that was? That was C.S. Lewis prior to his conversion. C.S. Lewis, who was teaching at Oxford, he had two fellow professors named Hugo Dyson and J.R.R. Tolkien, and they shared the gospel with their fellow professor. And it didn't happen right away, but over time, Lewis came to believe. He came to faith. And I, I know that many of you in this room have stories just like that, and so do I. And so I want to end with these words from Randy Newman. Randy Newman's written a number of books on evangelism, very helpful author. And he writes, remarking upon C.S. Lewis' conversion. He says, for every parent, pastor, or friend of someone expressing thoughts like these of 17-year-old Lewis, be reminded and encouraged. Isaiah 59, 1, surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. Lewis's conversion story, among many others like it in history, is an inspiring reminder no one is so lost that God can't find, rescue, and redeem them. No one who is currently skeptical about, disinterested in, or openly hostile toward Christ is beyond His transforming reach. Today's Saul could be tomorrow's Paul. Today's YouTube atheist influencer could be tomorrow's leading voice in apologetics. Today's deconstructing teenager could be the next generation C.S. Lewis. Just last week, I heard about Richard Dawkins, famed atheist, his right-hand man, John Timonin, uh, came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He renounced it. He left Dawkins. He said, no more. And he put his faith in the Savior. The Lord is at work today. Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. We ascribe glory and majesty to your name. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the work that you've done on our behalf. And this morning, I pray that we be keenly aware, as if it was just yesterday that you died for our sins, Father, that you would move us, that we, like Paul, would be controlled by the love of Christ, that we would feel it, that we would feel our desperate condition apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, Father, that we would be keenly aware, Lord, that we are lost apart from you, that we have no righteousness in and of ourselves. We proclaim a message not of, of our own works and good doing. We do not call others to do more and better. We call others, Father, to find life in Jesus. But, Father, it's an intimidating task. You send us out as sheep among wolves. So, Father, I pray that you would overwhelm us with the sight of your grace and your glory, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, and that we couldn't help ourselves, that we'd be like those who Jesus healed, and he said, do not tell anyone, and they told everyone. 
that we would say, as it's been said, Father, if I do not speak, I would die. Help us to speak of him who died for our sin. We love you, Father. We pray all of this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.